It's Wednesday, March 1st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The EPA and local Ohio officials have repeatedly said that their tests show that air quality in the area of East Palestine, Ohio is safe and that the chemicals there should dissipate. As of Sunday, officials have tested air in 578 homes and they say chemical pollution levels have not exceeded residential air quality standards. So that was all from CNN. That was a Almost verbatim quote, I added East Palestine so that you would know what I'm talking about. But here's the headline of that piece. High levels of chemicals could pose long-term risks at Ohio train derailment site, researchers say. So yeah, the researchers do say that. We also heard in the piece the EPA officials and government officials who don't discount the idea that there could be a risk, but haven't found that there's any. One researcher from Carnegie Mellon, the main guy quoted about one chemical, found that it was at higher levels than is usually acceptable, but they're not sure what that means. And then they quote the guy saying, it's not elevated to the point where it's necessarily like an immediate evacuate the building health concern. Let me say this about What may happen, what may ultimately happen with this, one of the biggest stories of the year, this train derailment outside of East Palestine. I mean, I know we're two months in, but it definitely has been dominating the news. I've talked about it a few times. So can't put any odds or numbers to this prediction. It's not even a prediction. It's just something that very well could happen, which is that the total consequence of all of this could be that some people get some headaches for a while. Oh, sure. There was a train crash. That's bad for Norfolk Southern and the people on the freight train. Certainly, it's not pleasant for the people next door, and they're very worried. That's real. But let's compare that and what we do know and what we can document to the coverage. Here's ABC's David Muir, World News Tonight. We turn next here tonight to the major news from federal investigators in that toxic train derailment in Ohio. Tonight, the head of the NTSB now says that derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, was, quote, 100% preventable. So I was the lead anchor of the most watched news broadcast reporting on the phrase that made headlines everywhere, 100% preventable. Muir threw to the reporter right up top. Within a minute of Muir, he aired this quote. Tonight, the NTSB was blunt as it delivered its initial findings into that train derailment and toxic spill in East Palestine, Ohio. This was 100 percent preventable. We know for a fact that this derailment occurred at car number 23. So we heard there from Jennifer Hamandy, who is the NTSB safety chair. We heard her saying 100 percent preventable. That's stark. That's blunt. And we heard the quote is 100% preventable. We know this derailment occurred at car 23. Now, those two sentences that you heard right there back to back as if they were one thought were not. They occurred within two minutes of each other or two minutes apart. That's fine. Media does this all the time. I've done it. We can't play a four minute quote in a 22 minute newscast. It's important to bring two distinct thoughts. It doesn't represent anything the speaker said. However, if you were to hear the entire context of the 100% preventable quote, maybe you'd think it was something less of a headline than was portrayed. And not just as portrayed by ABC, also The Guardian, CNN, local newscasts. That was the headline. Here's the rest of what Hammondy had to say. This was 100% preventable. We call things accidents. There is no accident. 
every single event that we investigate is preventable. So it's preventable insofar as there is no event that's not preventable. I'm not saying this framing renders the pronouncement of preventable as meaningless, but it does wash away the distinctiveness of the meaning. Now, Hamandi did come across like a real great public servant. She didn't do anything wrong. And it's probably good in to some degree that she has this all mistakes are preventable mindset. But knowing what we know, that she thinks everything is preventable, and also knowing that the toxic spill, though toxic, may not have any long-term effects, how are we sure that really anything happened here that's that much different from the thousand plus derailments that happen with trains every year? This story doesn't even have that much of a right-left balance. I know Fox would like to make it so, but mostly it's this picture of these piled up train cars and black smoke and the inability to look away, the unwillingness. No one in media wants to be the entity that doesn't pay attention to this issue that people are very concerned about and could well prove to be quite serious, could prove to be. We shouldn't look away. We shouldn't ignore it. But every time you don't look away, in other words, you train your focus on one thing, you're not looking at something else. And I think there's a lot of things to look at in America. Like, I don't know, to take one example, 100,000 opioid overdoses. No billowing smoke there, I know, but those overdoses also are all preventable. Crews in East Palestine are expected to begin clearing the still present rail cars from the tracks any day now. On the show today, trust in media was at an all-time low in recent years, and it just got lower. But first, Gideon Lewis Krauss is a staff writer at The New Yorker. Last August, he did a profile of Will McCaskill, one of the intellectual leaders of the effective altruism movement. If you heard a little bit about effective altruism, however, it was probably in the context of Samuel Bankman Freed, a big believer, maybe, if it's genuine, a big funder. Gideon Lewis Krauss went back talked to Sam Bankman-Fried, re-reported a lot of his findings, and his later piece, Sam Bankman-Fried, Effector of Altruism and the Question of Complicity, ran recently. Now, for Pesca Plus subscribers, the full interview or the lengthy, meaty interview with me and Gideon Lewis Krauss is available in your feed. If you'd like to subscribe to Pesca Plus or even to the ad-free version of The Gist, that's at subscribe.mikepesca.com. But for everyone, here now is Gideon Lewis Krauss on the rise and fall of effective altruism. So when I met Gideon Lewis Krauss, I said, I love your stuff. You wrote that big piece about UFOs and you wrote that especially great New Yorker article about the behavior geneticist, Catherine Page Hardin, which given the sensitivities of our moment was actually, I think, a brave article for the New Yorker to run. I can't believe I met you. You're Jonathan Wallace Wells. And he said, no, I'm Gideon Lewis Krauss. And I said, wait, you're Jonathan Safer Four. And he said, I am Gideon Lewis Krauss. And I said, wait, Juju Smith-Schuster. And finally, I got it through my thick head. So I'm telling you, I was excited to meet him. And then a news item occurred, and I said, I've got to get Gideon on. I'll read you a sentence from his definitive New Yorker piece of a person in the middle of this story. Like agriculture, 
echolocation, and the river dolphin. The practice that would become effective altruism emerged independently in different places at around the same time. See? Chef kiss of writing. So we're going to talk about Will McCaskill, who is the leader, the highest profile effective altruist, and his interactions with Samuel Bankman-Fried, who... Gideon interviewed for this article. Bankman Fried was uh, typically distracted. And I want to go back and check in on Gideon's reflections about the sincerity of all involved. Thanks for coming on the gist. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. That was a, a great introduction. Certainly long. So first, let's define this Will McCaskill guy for you as a journalist. It's really interesting to write about interesting ideas. And it's really great to have a great character, but they don't always line up. You know, the interesting thinker might just not be that compelling a guy. But in Will McCaskill, you had kind of everything, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I decided to do this story. Um, I had been kind of ambiently interested in effective altruism for, I don't know, maybe eight years. I've been kind of paying attention to it in the background. And you know, there was a certain kind of intellectual vibrancy that came out of the community that I, I would pay attention to. So I don't, it, it had been just kind of on my list of n- things that I would maybe write about one day. And then I saw that Will McCaskill had a book coming out, What We Owe the, the Future, it's called. And mm-hmm. I wrote to him and then I called him at this point over a year ago, probably 15, 16 months ago. And just from the beginning, we had a great conversation and he was... Um, this really vital feeling guy. I mean, I I was a little worried that EAs have a kind of tendency, especially in their written communications, to sound a little bit robotic, to sound just like, you know, cost-benefit calculators. Um, And I was worried that Will was going to sound like that. He didn't sound that way at all. He was somebody where from the very beginning, I could tell, like, look, this is somebody who has a real sense of the pervasiveness of human suffering and for a very long time has been committed to doing something about it and not just doing something about it, but, you know, doing the the best he could to address it. And to interrupt for a second, the reason that you might have had that um, worry was that effective altruism is essentially what if we took all of our charitable and sympathetic concerns and ran it through an actuarial algorithm to maximize benefits. That's that's essentially the vibe of it and what they're trying to do. So you could understand that, you know, maybe the people uh, beyond just how they come across on the page, but maybe the people themselves were a little less feeling and uh, and sharp around the edges and a little more robotic, as you said. Well, and people where, you know, they would see moral dilemmas as, you know, fairly clear cut mathematical considerations. And what what I liked so much about Will as a person and as a thinker was that he he really was tortured by this stuff and that this was stuff that, you know, he had, as he later told me, you know, he had volunteered for a disabled scout troop when he was in high school and, you know, would go on hikes where he had to routinely change adult diapers. And that then when he um, later one, one summer before university, he spent a summer just on the street canvassing for donations. And that these were like, very, very deeply felt moral commitments. And, you know, one of the criticisms of EA is like, oh, you've just reduced people to numbers. The EA reply is, well, all of those numbers represent people. And I think Will was somebody who really never lost sight of that. So now we get to Samuel Bankman-Fried, and we do. He's not just an interesting side character. Could you tell me how much he supercharged the EA movement, which you already knew about and was interesting to people who sought it out, let's say? Will meets Sam Bankman-Fried in like 
2012 or 2013 um, in Cambridge. He's there to give a talk at Harvard. Someone connects him to Bankman-Fried and they're having lunch. And, and as Will described it and as Sam described it to me, Sam is kind of casting about for some moral direction to his mm-hmm. life. And he's interested in animal welfare and should he go work for an animal welfare organization. And Will says, well, you know, you also could make a lot of money and donate. And as Sam tells the story, you know, this idea made immediate intuitive sense to him. He didn't have to be convinced. He was on board from this first conversation and Will saw him as someone who was, you know, the expected value was very high. This was somebody majoring and, you know, with like an academic pedigree, grew up on Stanford campus. Parents are Stanford law professors. The, the definite horse with the pedigree to bet on. Right, exactly. And he's a mm-hmm. physics major at MIT. So... Will encourages him to take the earning to give path. He says right away, yes, I'm going to do it. He goes to work for Jane Street. And now at every step of the way, he was being assisted, supported, encouraged by members of the movement. So at a certain point, he decides he's going to leave Jane Street and he's going to found Alameda Research, this Mm -hmm. trading firm. And the initial money to trade with, you know, his, his first bet is famously this um, Bitcoin arbitrage bet, which was trying to figure out how to take advantage of this arbitrage opportunity where um, Bitcoin was selling higher in Japan. And he has this like, I don't know, uh, initial investment of something like $100 million. And this comes directly from EA investors. And really from this, from the beginning, this whole thing is explicitly earned to give. And as Sam has said in interviews before FTX blew up, he had a great appetite for risk. And as he has explained many times, you know, if he were just trading for himself, he might think like, okay, you know, you make $100 million and the marginal value of the next dollar diminishes rapidly to the point that now you're just trying to figure out like, you know, buying boats that you're never going to use. But that if you're thinking about um, raising money for global welfare, there is no diminishing marginal value to each dollar. And that his instinct was you go with pure expected value bets. Um, You know, he he has said a bunch of times that he thought that there was only like a 10 or 20 percent chance of Alameda succeeding in the first place, Mm -hmm. but that he thought it was worthwhile and he didn't care for personal enrichment. He just wanted to raise as much money for the world as he could. So that's kind of that's the background here. Yeah. And then when it worked, it benefited EA, not just in terms of attention, but the funding that he gave to the movement was really transformative, it seems to me, from your reporting. So probably not quite at that early moment, but definitely by by the time he sets FTX up and by the time FTX um, you know, becomes the second biggest uh, crypto exchange in the world, you know, when I first talked to Will, it would have been like October, November of 2021, and they were already setting up what would then be announced as the FTX Future Fund. Mm-hmm. He had already been, been giving enormous amounts of money to politicians. He was named as the, I think, the second biggest donor um, to the Biden campaign in the 2020 cycle, something like $5 million. Uh, of course, some of that stuff now, you know, one, one, of, the, one of the charges of the indictment is um, campaign finance violations because it seems like he was, you know, pooling donations. Certainly by 2021, he is one of the two biggest donors to the EA movement. The other one being Dustin Markovitz, the, the Facebook founder and his wife, Kari Tuna, who had found, funded um, GiveWell and then Open Philanthropy. Um, so yeah, he is, you know, this was a movement where um, for a long time it was being funded by 
you know, people like him in the early stages of his career, people who are making, who knows, a couple hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars a year on Wall Street, and they're giving half of that to EA sources, then all of a sudden, the earning to give part of it becomes kind of a rounding error because now you have these two billionaires and, you know, at, at, at Sam's highest personal valuation, I think Forbes said he was worth, you know, $29 billion or something like that. So like this is now dwarfing all of the other funders in the movement. Yeah. Yeah. So what I, it, it's, you know, fascinating what's going on and how it's kind of tearing apart the movement um, just before he's even uh, exposed as having built his wealth on a lot of lies, chicanery, et cetera, to be adjudicated. So what I really want to do is as best you can, first of all, we'll document your interactions with Samuel Bankman Freed. And then I want to, as best we can, try to figure out how sincere he was and then talk about how that reflects on the movement and will. So this is first question. Um, did you did you really get to know him? Did you have a couple brief interviews where he was playing a video game? What was your sense of him? His SPF. We exchanged some emails, and then we had we had one. But I mean, you know, I wrote to his direct email, and he wrote me back the first time in half an hour. I mean, it was easy to get to him. Then then there was a um, PR person who like intermediary for a little while. But we ended up having this conversation. We talked for a little over an hour on Zoom last. May. The main thing that, you know, I wanted to talk to him about was the apparent conflict between, you know, the the so-called near-termist objectives of the early part of the movement, which were, you know, we can the cheapest way to save a life is to spend three or four thousand dollars on a insecticide treated bed net or a deworming program. Um, and you know, the the long term, so so to speak, the so-called long termism that had taken over and kind of like V2 of the movement that he he was associated with. Right. As exemplified by what we owe the future and fretting about artificial intelligence uh, destroying the earth, which is, by the way, where EA loses me. But go ahead. Well, I mean, not just that, though. Um, I mean, for, I, I think that's a somewhat more complicated um, issue than sometimes people treat it as being. But like pandemic prevention was a big thing. Now, right. you could point out that pandemic prevention had been a big thing in EA since 2015. And like, what do they do about it? Um, and what was interesting is, you know, I had put some version of this question to a number of the other senior EA figures who were interested in long-termism. And I found that I was getting a really consistent answer from that, which was, it was near-termism stuff that brought me into the movement to begin with. You know, I cared about animal welfare, or I cared about global poverty, mm-hmm. uh, or the eradication of tropical diseases. These were all, everybody had more or less the same story, that like these, these like real obvious sources of human suffering were what drew me to this in the first place and you know then there were people who said like well this this ai stuff like it kind of took me a while to get get on board with it and eventually you know like i still i'm still not sure but like lots of really smart people seem to think this is a um, thing so i'm gonna just follow them down this path um or you know there were people who said like well actually like i got taken step by step through these arguments about ai and now i realize that like there is something here and i do care about it but what almost everybody said to me and it was funny i had i I didn't talk about this in in the story but i had um i had dinner with will and um and his ex-wife they're still good friends and she made this joke about like what are the ways that you can tell like a old head uh in the ea community Mm -hmm. and one of them is that they say 
um, well, you know, I'm on board with the long-termist stuff, but like, I still give all my money to the near-termist stuff, you know, that like, even if like, I've completely convinced that AI should be, you know, AI risk should be a top priority. I still give my money to malaria. Nuts. Right, right. And, you know, one of the other people who said exactly the same thing to me, and I quote this in, in the original piece was Nishad Singh, who's the fourth executive, um, who is not yet, um, the FTX exec, the fourth yeah. exec, who's who's the head of engineering, and um, he was a, a friend of Gabe Bankman Fried's from childhood, and then he he'd been earning to give it at Facebook before he ended up at Alameda. Um, I should say I really like this guy on the phone. Like he was incredibly thoughtful, um, and he said to me, like, look you know, and he's also somebody who was worth, I mean, I don't know, probably at some point a billion dollars. Um, he said to me, I am fully on board with these long termist arguments, but I know that I have to like keep what he said, keep the fire in my belly. So like, that's why I keep giving to these near-termist, near-termist causes. So it felt to me almost like everybody had been given the same talking points, which is right. you acknowledge that this is a priority. And then you say that personally, I'm still invested in, in malaria in bed nets. Which is a good thing to say. I mean, like, it seemed may, maybe every, the talking points had circulated, but like everybody seemed genuine saying that. And I could imagine feeling that way. If I were to try to understand or try to discern the sincerity, I like the uh, criteria of where do you give your money. I would also give extra credence to those with only one kidney left. Anyone who donated a kidney, <laughs> I think gets one and a half times votes. And I mean, it's pretty clear when you talk to EAs that all of the kidney donors know who all the other kidney donors are. I mean, it's yeah. like a it's like a special additional cachet in the in the community. And I'm yeah, and I'm going to guess they're not the ones most concerned with uh, AI. <laughs> You know, I, I'm, I don't know. I'm not, yeah. I wouldn't, I, I'm not sure about that correlation. But Will actually was very apologetic for not having given a kidney. And he, he clearly was. had this whole spiel about why, he, like, that he had prepared about why he didn't give a kidney. And part of it was the opportunity cost of, like, the time mm -hmm. he spent in the hospital. Sure. Did that, did the math work out. And I was like, if you don't want to give a kidney, it's fine that you don't want to give a kidney. But anyway. This is where it gets a little culty. Like, if you haven't sacrificed an organ, you're not as pure as others. Uh, yeah, uh, that doesn't strike me is culty because you know there is because there is a logic to it i mean it's an it's an incredible sign of your commitment yeah. in terms of like like making these costly signals you know it's like uh uh getting the russian prison tattoo that like if you have a fake one and they find out it's fake you know they're going to kill you um uh, that like th this was like really costly so nishad says to me like to keep the fire in my belly out these these are the these are the causes i keep coming to so i i have this same conversation i wanted to see what sam was going to say and sam basically says, I never had a bed nets phase. I cared about animal welfare, but I never gave any money for tropical diseases. Uh, I never gave any money for deworming. Those things were not interesting to me. I was interested in long-term causes before Will was interested in them. In fact, like these were my motivations as early as, you know, 2013, 2014, when I signed up, I always knew that I was interested in long-termism and uh, you know, he said kind of the most the most damning thing an EA could say, which is that he considered near term causes to be emotional giving, meaning like you know there these is not hard headed, it's not rigorous, it's mere sentiment, and um, it's not it's not for me. And so on the one hand, it's almost like you know this really famous Matt Levine interview with him where he talks about yield farming and this, the secret box. And one of the things that 
that made him so appealing to people was like, oh, this is a guy in crypto who's like not full of shit. Like at least he's being honest about what he's doing. Right. He's coming out and saying like, these are my intellectual priorities and I have turned them into my giving priorities. And I, I don't think that we as a movement should be wasting our money on bed nets. And I thought like, well, okay. I mean, like, at least you'll say that honestly. It sheds a lot of light on the question I'm really interested in, which is how sincere was he all along? Was he really a vegan when he met Will McCaskill? Was he really into this? Was he using this as a shield or a ruse? Um, he, he has admitted, or he admitted in a text interview with Vox that a lot of SBF did that he, um, unlike many other crypto traders wanted government regulation. He did admit that was just PR. And I think that's been taken by many others as an overall admission that his overall guys, his support of the democratic party, maybe even his EA stance was all PR, that it was all an act. And what you just said to me that he was willing when no one had any inkling that he was sitting atop a house of cards, he was willing to say, no, I don't even believe in the rest of this stuff. I've always believed in long-termism. That at least indicates to me that there was a sincerity to it. So I I have a bunch of things to say about this because, so one thing I'll say is the veganism is an interesting question. One of the things that has not come up in the post-fiasco stuff is if you go back and listen, I think that one of these is in his interview with the 80,000 hours podcast, which, you know, these are these interminable four hour podcasts that yeah. I can't in good conscience recommend anybody listen to. Um, <laughs> What's well, truth and labeling, right? But he also, he's, he was on Tyler Cowen's podcast, um, which, which definitely is worth listening to. And I, I it was on one of these, actually in uh, more than one of these, somebody asked him the story about becoming a vegan. And he does not say I became a vegan because I care so much about animal suffering. He basically says, every time that I sat down to lunch, I had to make a decision between like whether I was going to have like a real cheeseburger or a veggie burger. And I just decided that like, I didn't want that like running cognitive tax. And if I just decided once and for all to stop eating meat, I wouldn't have to think about it anymore. And I would just be a vegan. So the story he told was not one about Amazing. like about animal suffering. It was one yeah. about just relieving himself of having to make this decision. Um, so he does. He didn't talk about veganism the way Will talks about veganism. He didn't talk about veganism the way like Ezra Klein talks about veganism. He talked about veganism like as just like a kind of calculation he'd made about his like running yeah. cognitive load. Right. I don't think he was saying that like his commitment to EA was was bullshit. It was just a front. I think he was saying like, oh, there are certain kinds of like corporate social responsibility things that we're expected to do that are just bullshit. Um, so, I mean, I don't think there's any reason not to be- believe that, yes, actually, like he did care about this long-termism stuff and he was raising this money um, because he wanted to put it to these causes. Now, what I will say is I still think fundamentally this was somebody, he maybe wasn't interested in wealth for its own sake mm-hmm. um you know he said to me like like why would i ever need a boat and there there was a fox news story that said that he had had a yacht that i you know i tried to chase this down and there were there was this was not there was no source for this like it does not seem like he owned a yacht maybe he rented a yacht to entertain scaramucci or something but he didn't have a yacht as far as anybody can tell he did fly private but i'm sure mm-hmm. that he could justify flying private um in his mind but anyway I do think, so I don't think he was interested in opulence. I do think he was interested in power. And I do think that he saw this, you know, given the 
um, given the milieu that he grew up in, in this kind of like card carrying consequentialist uh, Stanford Law family, that he saw like the, you know, like he was interested in the accrual of a certain kind of status. And this was like that, this was the way that he was going to satisfy whatever bloodlust he had for power that then would, would, could be justifiable in the like, you know, at, around the family dinner table. Gideon Lewis Krauss is a staff writer at The New Yorker. His memoir is A Sense of Direction. Gideon, thank you so much. Mike, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And now the spiel. The United States is not doing so well when it comes to trusting the media. Or, let's put it another way, maybe the United States is doing really well in perceiving that the media is not to be trusted. In any case, the Reuters Institute at the University of Oxford has come out with their annual survey, Digital News Report 2022, which is the most comprehensive study of news consumption worldwide, and the most distrustful society in the world, tied for last place with Slovakia, USA, USA. Now, this raises the obvious question. What is so bad about the media in Slovakia? On the Just Today, a multi-part series. For Pesca Plus subscribers, the episode is available in Slovakian. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm not serious. See, you can't trust me. This all sounds much more believable than the original Slovak. Here now is Rasmus Nielsen, co-author of the Digital News Report and director of the Reuters Institute and professor of political communication at the University of Oxford. He was asked to single out, what's the biggest basket case out there? Um, I think one I will single out uh, because it's a country uh, uh, that provides a lens through which many people across the globe often think about their own media environment. Uh, is the United States. And the reason I single it out is twofold. One is that the United States is an outlier in our data set. It's the country uh, in our uh, sample of countries that has the lowest level of trust overall, uh, just a little over half of the average across 46 markets. Um, the other reason I single it out is that the United States today is a um, very politically polarized uh, society, uh, more so than many of the other uh, societies that we cover in our research. For the record, his political football is round and can't be touched with your hands, but it's still a good point and a bad situation. Let's focus this lens on the U.S. for a second. The survey isn't the only one of its kind. The information contained isn't new. In October, Gallup found of Americans, 34% had a great deal or fair amount of confidence in the media. 38% had no trust at all in the media. It was the first time that Gallup ever found that no trust at all outpaced great deal or fair amount. The phenomenon really diverges when it comes to party registration. 70% of Democrats still trust the media. 14% of Republicans do. 27% of independents trust the media. I would say that 70% of the Democrats trust the media because the media is made for them. 
The media that the right does trust certainly is not the solution. But the media that the left trust isn't the solution either. It won't work for Republicans. It won't work for independents. And it's really not even working for Democrats because America is also one of the worst countries in terms of media engagement. And just 47% of Americans say they are very or extremely interested in news. Back in 2015, not that long ago, though right about the time that social media and iPhones became ubiquitous, but that 47% number was a very healthy 67%. And remember, it was right after then that Trump got elected and we all got a little more interested in media. So this number has cratered. And this doesn't break down right-left. Only 41% of Americans say they now trust the very media that they themselves used. For a time, the whole question, do you trust the media? I always took it as something of a way of asking, hey, the other guy's media, is it biased? Because, you know, it's all the media. Once you let some poison seep into the well, you got to say, okay, the media ain't great for you. But now, increasingly, we're so despondent and distrustful. We think our own media is biased or It's just not working for us. At best, it's so upsetting, we don't want to engage. And I know there are a number of liberals listening to this saying, well, that's only accurate. What the media is doing is showing us a terrible world. I dispute that, but let's also keep in mind that one of the media's jobs, one of the way it does latch on to us, is to portray the world as more catastrophic and terrible than it is. The right is likely to say they avoid the news because the news is biased. The left says they avoid the news because they're overwhelmed and find it depressing. I would say, Matt Iglesias has a good article on this today, Doomerism is not only misplaced, it's a business model for the media. Another problem, and this isn't caught in any statistical finding, but I did read in an excellent substack called The Liberal Patriot, I did read an analysis of this, and there was a phrase that jumped out. John Halpin, one of the authors of that substack, wrote, People are aware of America's infamous political polarization and the seepage of strange partisan and ideological outlooks into every aspect of modern life. Perhaps less well understood, the increase in seemingly irresolvable partisan conflicts also coincides with a total collapse in public trust of objective news reporting among most Americans. What was the phrase that stuck out? Collapse in public trust of objective news reporting. Okay, yeah, that's sad that it's collapsed. I also think it's a pretty fine way to encapsulate the problem. But no, says one prominent faction seeking to redo journalism today and getting their way. The problem is that there ever was a notion of objective news reporting. As you know, I'm not beholden to the very definition of objectivity, but I think it's smart to hold on to credibility by looking to the idea of objectivity as something of a North Star. We have all these dislocations in our society, and they're made worse if a really vital institution, the press, wants to just tear it all down, questions the whole idea of shared truths, doesn't no longer believe in fealty to the facts. And this, the dislocations, that's the real problem, by the way. It's not the rise of any one network or the Murdochs or one side of the argument that eschews facts for outcomes or the rise of postmodernism, with it, which eschews truth for the, I don't know, seemingly flummoxing rhetorical question of whose truth. It's that the media world and the world world is so fractured It allows any and all contaminants to seep through the cracks. Realities, they're now just opt-in. 
or they're wash and wear, and increasingly more of us are discarding them. Do I have solutions? Yes, in fact, I do. I record one every day. And that thing I say at the end of the show, you know, after the Mperu part, that is real. I actually think that there are a lot of paths to credibility. And to get there, the people who could make a difference have to be a little braver than their next earnings report and a little stiffer of spine than to tremble in the face of the latest fashionable critique. This is to say, if the people who can make a difference want to make a difference, things have been working out okay for them. Let's not forget, freedom of the press is still a pretty good deal for the people who own one. And that's it for today's show. The gist is produced by Corey Wara several times as we had to re-record. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of said gist. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru. And thanks for listening.